It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. It's Veterans Day weekend, and I thought I would take a little time, number one, to thank all of you who have served your country, whether it be in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, or the Coast Guard. Your efforts, your time, your sacrifice are all appreciated, as is the sacrifice of your families that had to endure your absence and taking care of things on the home front while you were gone. You know, we have highlighted a number of nonprofit organizations over the years that cater to veterans, especially combat veterans, and help them to get through the troubled times that they've had to experience. Examples would be Project Healing Waters. It uses fly fishing for therapy. There's also Warriors in Quiet Waters, based in Bozeman, Montana, that does similar work. And they've also expanded to include hunting and other activities as well. Wounded Warrior Outdoors, based in Florida, they send soldiers recovering from injuries to hunts all over North America. And then Heroes on the Water is an organization that uses kayaks and kayak fishing as a way to help not just veterans, but also first responders. My hat's off to all these organizations and the other ones that I have missed. And I would urge you to consider either volunteering with one of these organizations or financially supporting them so that they can continue their mission of helping out our veterans. This week on the show, we've got some great guests for you. Speaking of nonprofit organizations, we'll be getting a chance to talk to the executive director of the Outdoor Stewards of Conservation Foundation. That would be Jim Kirkarudo. And they just released a very interesting research paper that is all about the recent proliferation of hunting with AR platform rifles. We're talking modern sporting rifles here. There are a lot more people using them for hunting these days, and this expansion has really hit home in the last five years. Jill will be sharing more details about this survey that has been released, and he'll also tell you more about what the Outdoor Stewards of Conservation Foundation does. Another guest we'll talk to today is John Walrath. He is a biologist for Wyoming Game and Fish. We're going to talk about Flaming Gorge Reservoir. This is a big body of water on the border of Utah and Wyoming that over the years has earned a reputation of being perhaps the best trophy kokanee fishery in the United States. It also has some very big lake trout. It's known as a good rainbow and cutthroat trout fishery. It even has smallmouth bass and burbot. However, in recent years, Things have been changing and not for the better. The cause? Small lake trout, which are eating up kokanee and other fish. John will explain more about how this is happening and invite you to come to Flaming Gorge Reservoir this month to catch a whole bunch of these smaller lake trout that are less than 28 inches in size to take home and eat and get them out of the lake. Sticking with fishing, we'll also get a chance to chat with Joe Cermelli, in just a minute, the topic is grayling in Michigan. They went extinct about 100 years ago, but it looks like they're about to make a comeback thanks to the state of Michigan's efforts to reintroduce them through hatchery operations. And at the end of the show, we'll get a chance to talk to Keith Sutton. He is the editor 
of Catfish Now, a free digital publication. He wrote a great article about catching flathead catfish in rivers, exactly where to look for them, what to use to catch the big ones. And I'm going to ask him, is catfishing a thing in the late fall and winter or not? Not just for flathead catfish, but other species too. Keith will weigh in on that, and I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. Before we talk to Keith, though, let's start off with our first interview of the day. Next on America Outdoors Radio, we've got Joe Cervelli on the line. He is the fishing editor for Outdoor Life. Just penned an article about Michigan's efforts to reintroduce grayling into that state. This is a state that had a robust population of grayling, but they pretty much went extinct in that state about 100 years ago. As a matter of fact, there's even a town in Michigan called grayling. That's how prolific they were at one time. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate being here, man. So let's talk a little bit about this. Where are we at in Michigan when it comes to getting grayling back into rivers and lakes? Well, it's pretty interesting. As a guy who is just fascinated by native fish, I've sort of been following along with this. This has been ongoing for a few years now, but like you had mentioned, because of logging and overfishing and reduction of habitat, the grayling have been gone for many, many years. So the, the state has implemented a stocking program where they're taking grayling from Alaska, I believe, and raising them in the Marquette hatchery. And the ultimate goal is to reintroduce them to some of the rivers and smaller tributaries where they once thrived and hopefully foster a self-sustaining population again in a lot of those rivers. And what's what's been in the news recently is that the, the hatchery program has been so successful that the state has now ended up with excess breeding fish, bigger fish in the, in the roughly the 10 to 14 inch range that they might be stocking in some waters within the state within the state as early as, as late this fall or uh, or this winter. So in a way, it's not sort of the full program come to life, but Michigan anglers and anybody else who wants to go up there might actually have the chance to catch grayling in Michigan again sooner rather than later. Oh, that'd be absolutely amazing. Do they have a list of the lakes or rivers they're considering yet or not? You know, I've looked into that, and I have not been able to find that. And I think, you know, there's been a bit of politics wrapped up in this whole thing, you know, in terms of where to put these fish. Another interesting caveat is that even though the grayling have not really existed in many, many years within the state, in the in the rule book, it is said that uh, you cannot target grayling within Michigan. Well, that also, just this past summer, that has been lifted to where now you can legally catch and release grayling within the state. And that's sort of preemptive, I think, of this program taking hold because the state recognizes that, you know, naturally these fish are going to end up in places where people fish for trout and steelhead and other things. So it's very hard to differentiate between targeting one or the other. So right now, as I understand it, they are still sort of getting all their, their fish grown in the hatchery, and they're still debating exactly which rivers and streams they're going to end up putting these fish in. And I would suspect that as soon as they pull the trigger on putting this excess brood stock in the Upper Peninsula lakes, they will obviously publish a list of the lakes they're going in. They're looking at a few hundred fish. But to the best of, of my research, John, so far they're still keeping that kind of close to the vest. They haven't quite announced yet where all these fish are going to wind up. 
You know, grayling are so rare in the lower 48. I was lucky enough to catch some out of a, an alpine lake in Washington State a couple decades ago, literally. They exist in alpine lakes in, in states like Utah and Idaho, and you can still catch them on the Big Hole River in Montana. But to have them back in Michigan, that is something that's really special indeed. Now, you're a bit of a, a grayling fanatic, and you got up to Alaska just to fish for grayling, haven't you? I have. You know, it's a funny story because as a kid, I was fascinated by them because here's this thing in my North American Fishing Club books that is completely foreign to me. I, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. There's no grayling here. So I remember the first time I ever fished in Alaska, we were fishing a small stream called Peter's Creek way out in the bush looking for rainbow trout. And the first thing I catch is this really nice grayling. And it was funny because I coddled this thing because I thought, well, this is a mythic fish. Like, what a rarity. And, you know, it didn't take long to figure out that you know, this thing that we hold dear and are, are long gone in the lower 48, man, Alaska is just overrun with them. Pretty much every stream up there is chock full of grayling, especially in the interior. So, yeah, a few years ago, I went up there to pike fish, not far north of Fairbanks, and took a whole day aside to float one of the rivers up there, which really had not much else in it but grayling, and they were some big ones, and they were plentiful, and they're, they're a lot of fun to catch. So, yeah, again, as a guy who loves native fish, that would just be the thing I would do, is go all the way to Alaska and spend an entire day there not doing the A-list salmon, steelhead, normal thing, halibut thing, and just fishing for grayling. But it, it's a blast, and I highly recommend it if anybody's up there to, to take a day to just target these fish. Sounds like a perfect day on the water to me. I'm a big fan of grayling, too. Folks, if you want to read this article, just go to OutdoorLife.com. You'll find this article by Joe Cermelli and a whole bunch of other articles by him, too, when it comes to fishing. OutdoorLife.com, that's the place to go to. If you're not already subscribed, become a subscriber today. Joe, thanks for sharing this with us on America Outdoors Radio. Anytime, John. Appreciate you having me on. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting goods stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. Immerse yourself in a complete Alaska wilderness experience through Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Up to six of you will spend a week in a beautiful waterfront log home in a secluded cove. Every day is a new adventure. Go on a guided fishing trip or haul in a bounty of shrimp and crab. Visit a Native American village where totem poles are carved. Go on a whale or bear watching trip and return back to your very own place at the end of the day. Find out more about the Alaska wilderness experience at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. 
Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter and has what you need as a hunter, angler, hiker, paddler, camper, and outdoors enthusiast. They also carry an extensive assortment of firearms and ammunition you simply can't find anymore at many big box stores. On top of that, their knowledgeable staff is here to help you purchase the right gear so you can get the most out of your outdoor experience. Visit your local Sportsman's Warehouse store today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. We are heading to Connecticut to talk to Jim Kirkaruto. He is the executive director for the Outdoor Stewards of Conservation Foundation, and they just released the results of a very interesting survey about the proliferation of hunters that are using modern sporting rifles with the AR-15 platform. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we got some exciting uh, new research out there that I appreciate the opportunity to help spread the word. You know, this was really interesting to me. I know that folks do use AR-15 style rifles for certain types of hunting, but it looks like uh, the number of hunters using them is really increasing. Why don't you go ahead and share some of the results of the survey with our listeners? Sure. Well, obviously, uh, in modern sporting rifle, the AR platforms are uh, a hot topic and for a lot of reasons. But, you know, hunters have known for quite some time that they are a very useful tool for all types of hunting, from small game to varmint to to big game. And really the topic hadn't been looked at in about a decade on, um, you know, hunters using the AR platform for um, multiple purposes in, in the field. And I think the last time it was looked at was uh, the research was maybe 2014, and it was about 27% of hunters said they had ever used that modern sporting rifle for hunting. And now just uh, this year, we, we asked that question again, and it's up to 41% of hunters said they have ever used uh, that AR platform for hunting, which kind of we, we figured anecdotally, but it's nice to have that hard data to see the, the increase. And really not a surprise because they are so versatile. So you asked the question of why hunters were using AR-15 platform rifles for hunting. You got some interesting answers, didn't you? Yeah, tell you what, if you've shot one before, you know they are accurate, they're reliable, and they're kind of easy to shoot, right? Good ergonomics on them. So those, the main reasons that uh, hunters responded why they're using that MSR to hunt is, number one, ease of shooting, number two, accuracy, and number three, reliability. You know, they're also lightweight and kind of easy to carry in the field if you've got the right sling for them, so... Again, not a surprise, but again, good to have that the hard data to help people understand the market better and um, you know, consider uh, if you're a hunter, you know, looking into them. And also, if you're a manufacturer, consider, you know, this data for your marketing and production purposes. And I like what you said about that last part with the manufacturers. You know, having been to SHOT Show many times in Las Vegas, the shooting, hunting, outdoor trade show, so many manufacturers of AR-15 just basically target the tactical side of the house and they don't target the hunting side and you know the results of the survey hopefully will make some of these manufacturers realize maybe we need to change our marketing efforts and maybe these rifles shouldn't be black but maybe camo instead and maybe we should use some different calibers too 
Yeah, definitely has been an expansion in that area for sure from the manufacturing standpoint, but there's definitely room for growth. I think you may have seen it, but this one, one question stood out to me almost the most. And we had asked the hunters, you know, that have not used an AR platform to hunt with, what is the likelihood that you would use one? And, you know, say very likely, somewhat likely, not very likely or not likely at all. And the hunters that said they're very likely to look into using a air platform rifle to hunt with was 23%. So, you know, you've got millions of hunters out there, and 23% of them have a, a very likely interest in that. You certainly have uh, potential for some market share growth if you're a manufacturer. And, again, it is interesting to see how much interest is out there. You know, I didn't see it broken down in the executive summary, but did you ask the question of specifically what kind of game folks were hunting? Because I always think of coyotes and hogs when it comes to the 223 uh, AR-15. But I'm guessing there's more than that. I'm just wondering what the percentages were if you asked that question. We did. We used it for, we just broke it down large game and small game, and we actually had a question in there on, you know, varmint hunting as identified as hogs and, and coyotes and stuff. But uh, unfortunately, there was some corrupt data in that. So we, we ended up with just how do you use your, your AR platform to hunt large game or small game. And large game was identified as deer or elk. And of those that are using the AR platform to hunt with already, 81% said, yes, they're using them to hunt large game. And 31% said they're using them uh, for small game, which, you know, definitely not surprised on the, the high percentage using them for large game. But this, the small game kind of goes back to, you know, a little bit about your caliber. You know, there's plenty of AR platform rifles in 22 caliber that are, that are perfect for squirrel and rabbits, uh, or at least squirrels. And I actually did a squirrel hunt earlier this year when one of the co-hunters was, uh, was using his Smith & Wesson AR platform to hunt squirrels and knocked them down pretty good. I like it. And another question that really stood out for me was how long hunters have been using the AR-15 platform for hunting. Vast majority, five years or less. So this is definitely a new trend, isn't it? Yeah, there's been a tremendous you know, growth in overall production and purchasing of that AR platform modern sporting rifle in the past five years. So it makes perfect sense that, uh, you know, the majority of folks that are hunting with them haven't used them for more than five years. But it also shows that, you know, that a new gun owner has some interest in hunting. And when they combine those two, they're out there using these firearms. So, again, I see some potential growth for this in the future as well. We've got about two minutes left. Let's talk about the Outdoor Stewards of Conservation Foundation. It's a nonprofit. What is your organization all about? Sure. We've got a mission to help recruit the next generation of what we call HAP. And those are hunters, anglers, trappers, and shooters. And even though there's 60 million active hats in America, you know, we need to kind of recruit more to the, to replace the ones that are aging out of that community. And we've got a program called Come With where we are activating those uh, current participants and asking them, hey, invite somebody new, be a mentor, train somebody new. And we're also trying to promote positive messages that people of the hats that are out there cleaning up the environment, you know, where that litter bugs, they do land management. We provide biodegradable bags to hats across America in a program called Fill a Bag While Filling Your Tag. And we also have a program called Connecting with Conservation, 
Well, we try to inform and thank those hats for being primary funders of contribution. You know, between license sales and purchasing excise tax products, hats purchase about $3.6 billion worth of that, and that goes to state wildlife agencies, and, and without that money, they can't operate. So hats are really the primary funders of conservation, and we want to get that message out there, and folks can go to outdoorstewards.org to find more information, or certainly uh, follow us on Instagram, at Outdoor Stewards, to keep track of what we're up to. All right. It sounds like it's an organization that's doing some great things, and you certainly came out with an eye-opening study based on some recent research you've done. The website to go to to find out more, OutdoorStewards.org. That's OutdoorStewards.org for the Outdoor Stewards of Conservation Foundation. Jim, thanks so much for sharing all of this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. All right. Appreciate it, John. Take care. I'm Anthony Imperato, president of Henry Repeating Arms. Patriotic Americans are looking to protect and provide for their families now more than ever. Henry has over 200 rifles and shotguns to choose from. Made in America or not made at all. And backed by a lifetime guarantee. Order a free catalog, decals, and a list of Henry dealers in your area. Go to HenryUSA.com or call 1-800-958-4993. Thank you and God bless America. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Back in with America Outdoors Radio, I'm John Cruz. Our next guest is John Walrath. He is a fisheries biologist from Wyoming Game and Fish. The subject is Flaming Gorge Reservoir. This is a reservoir located on the border of Wyoming and Utah. It has been known for years as a trophy kokanee fishery, perhaps the best trophy kokanee fishery, which are landlocked sockeye salmon in the entire United States. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. So let's start off with a fishing report. It is fall, and I understand the fishing for lake trout, which are found in this lake, is pretty good right now. It is very good right now, and it was even better back in October when these small lake trout, those are under 28 inches, there's a big chunk of them that come up and spawn in less than 30 foot of water. And it can just be phenomenal fishing where a couple of guys could have a 100 fish day out there catching two to three pound lake trout. 
Wow. Now, when these fish are in the shallows, how do you go about catching them? A lot of guys like taking a tube jig, some kind of a jig, and just winging it towards shore. And then what you want to do is just bounce it off the bottom, bringing it back to you. And, you know, sometimes they'll crash it when you're only about 10 foot of water. And other times, you know, you'll be almost right under your boat before they pick it up. Interesting. This sounds like smallmouth bass fishing to me. And as a matter of fact, don't you have smallmouth bass in this reservoir too? We do. We do have smallmouth bass in the reservoir. They've been struggling for a few years here while Burbit kind of ate all the juvenile smallmouth bass that we had in the reservoir. But they're hanging on, and we are starting to see some better recruitment with the smallmouth bass in the reservoir as the burbot numbers go down. And a lot of the techniques that people can use to catch the lake trout in the spawning season are going to be very similar to how they might catch smallmouth bass. All right. So this is a really unique body of water. It's a big reservoir, again, bordering Wyoming and Utah. For years, folks would go there to catch really big kokanee salmon. But there's also lake trout in there, some very sizable lake trout. There's rainbow trout. There's smallmouth bass. But in recent years, you've had things kind of upend a little bit. The kokanee fishery is not as good. The fishing for big lake trout isn't as good. You've got problems with the smallmouth bass fishery. And a lot of this, I understand, has to do with the fact that there's this huge number of small lake trout in the lake right now. Explain why this is affecting everything else. Well, as any ecosystem, it's a delicate balance as far as prey and predators and what you have in your system. And for a number of years, you know, we've been staying ahead of the balance where we have plenty of kokanee out there for anglers to catch. And a few years ago, that balance got flipped where we ended up having too many lake trout in there. And they basically ate through all the recruitment that we had to where anglers definitely noticed uh, catching fewer kokanee and fewer rainbows, fewer cutthroat, everything they like to go catch, there were fewer of them out there. And that was just a simple matter of, you know, a few years of poor recruitment on kokanee and then fewer kokanee for other lake trout to eat. And they were eating quite a few of them. So that pretty much wipes out any kind of recruitment year class strength that we had for the kokanee in the reservoir. And that was due to just high numbers of these lake trout that We've shown in some research we've conducted that these under 28-inch lake trout can have about 25% of their diet consists of kokanee. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I can certainly see why the kokanee fishery is in trouble because of that. So, obviously, Wyoming Game and Fish in Utah, Department of Natural Resources, is urging anglers to keep these smaller lake trout. What's the limit, if any, on these lake trout under 28 inches? Yeah, we've been encouraging anglers to keep what they catch for the small lake trout. And that's been going on really since 2006 when they were pulled out of our trout aggregate regulation. That was then bumped up to eight fish per day, eight fish in possession. And then in 2019, we upped that again to further continue encouraging harvest to to the public. So right now, the regulation is 12 fish per day, one over 28 inches, and you can have 24 fish in possession. What else is Wyoming Game and Fish or Utah doing to encourage harvest of these smaller lake trout? Well, we've done some fishing clinics just to help people that are unfamiliar with how to go after and target these small lake trout, how to specifically target them, and then 
We've been encouraging derby sponsors to put on fishing derbies that specifically target the small lake trout and then also including them in the derbies that already exist uh, on the reservoir. And then just basically just spreading the word via, you know, various media outlets such as programs like yourself and just others regionally here as any way to get the message out that there's a lot of lake trout in the reservoir and they taste good. They're low in mercury, and the people should just take advantage of the lake trout that they catch and take them home. You know, it's it's funny that you're having the, the derbies. I know that up at Flathead Lake in northwestern Montana, they have Mac Days in the spring and fall, and, and that's designed for exactly the same thing, to cull the number of lake trout there to save the cutthroat trout population. Has either state, Utah or Wyoming, considered doing something similar to what's happening on the Columbia River in Oregon and Washington, where they work to reduce the pike minnow population that's consuming steelhead and salmon smolt by actually having a program where you turn in the fish and get money in return. There are a lot of things that we've been discussing, and not just this year, but years prior, too, you know, as far as are there things we can do to help improve the survival of the fish that we are stocking, and what regulations can we put into place that might increase the harvest on the small lake trout while also decreasing harvest by anglers on the kokanee salmon. And then there's a lot of research being done out there that all these actions might not be enough. So what other method can we think of that we can implement that might be able to flip the scales again to where we actually decrease the lake trout population and increase our kokanee population? And some of those things that we're talking about, I mean, does consist of some kind of net removal program. Uh, possibly some kind of a bounty program, you know, just like you're talking about, where you would pay anglers a certain dollar amount for the number of the lake trout that they do harvest. I and mean, these are all the things that, I mean, we're talking about. There's a lot of things to flesh out there as far as the feasibility and the logistics of implementing those kind of programs because they don't just happen overnight. And it takes a lot of planning and foresight to get budgets lined up to even start to implement a program like that. But it is something that both states are talking about and before any decision is made what all that stuff will be brought out to the public as well. Well, in the meantime, you can certainly do your part to help the kokanee and the bass and the trout in Flaming Gorge Reservoir by going fishing for lake trout, specifically these smaller lake trout that are wreaking havoc on these other fish populations. So plan on heading to Flaming Gorge Reservoir during the month of November. Catch some of these lake trout, take them home, smoke them, grill them, Fry them up, eat them, and do your part to help conserve these other fish. John, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you, John. Do you love to fish? Do you love to eat fish? Well, if you do, you know how important it is to have something to keep things sharp. Now, in the boat, it might be something to keep your hook sharp, like maybe the pocket knife sharpener from WorkSharp, which also works just fine along with the guided field sharpener for keeping fillet knives sharp. So when it comes to cleaning those fish you catch for the day, you can get that done in a hurry. And let's not forget back at the house when you're preparing those fish for a meal. That's when you want to have a kitchen knife sharpener, and there's several electric ones available. You can find them all at WorkSharpTools.com, which lists all sorts of both manual and electric sharpeners you can use in the kitchen, in the shop, or in the field. 
Sharp hooks and sharp knives make for a happy day on the water. So get your sharpener today at WorkSharpTools.com or look for these products at quality sporting goods stores and hardware stores near you. been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska for a while now, and there's a reason. They are the only Alaska Lodge we talk about in this show. It's because they're truly Alaska's best lodge. The adventure starts with a float plane ride from Ketchikan, after which you'll get the chance to experience some of the best hospitality, food, and wonderful people you'll ever meet. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales, and let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing. Halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Campers, adventure seekers, hunters, and foodies. No matter the lifestyle, we can all agree on one thing. Great food and great people are worth remembering. At Camp Chef, we don't just make grills. We create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love. Learn more about Camp Chef grills, smokers, and portable cooking equipment at CampChef.com. That's CampChef.com for a better way to cook outdoors. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. Looking to reel in the marketing opportunity of a lifetime? Then set the hook because we've got it right here. America Outdoors Radio has sponsorships available, and we offer an affordable platform to reach thousands of listeners interested in fishing, hunting, and the outdoors. Find out more by contacting host John Cruz through his website at AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. That's AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. But hurry, if you wait too long, this big opportunity might just get away. That's AmericanOutdoorsRadio.com. Attention small business owners, this could be the most important 10-minute call you will ever make. You could recover up to $26,000 per employee today. And all you have to do is make one short 10-minute call to take your business up a notch or bounce back from these difficult couple of years. Omega Accounting Solutions can help you recover any payroll tax overpayments you made during the pandemic. You may even be eligible to receive up to $26,000 per employee. All it takes is a quick, easy, free 10-minute ERC consultation to determine if you qualify. Omega is the small business champion with teams dedicated to maximizing tax credits. They know their stuff so well that CPAs and payroll companies even turn to Omega for ERC tax guidance. Call 800-300-9ERC. That's 800-300-9ERC. 1-800-300-9ERC or visit omegataxcredits.com.
You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Next up, we get to talk to Keith Sutton. He is the man behind Catfish Now. It's a free digital magazine that you can subscribe to. Simply go to catfishnow.com and you'll get all the information you need to become a better catfish angler. Keith, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, John. So, Keith, you wrote a great article in the latest edition of Catfish Now about catching flatheads in the current. Now, I'll be honest. When I think of flatheads, I always think of them being bottom feeders, scavengers. But you really dispel that notion in this article, don't you? Yeah, you know, flatheads kind of look like scavengers, I guess. They're, They're not a very pretty fish. I've always said we called them the big ugly when I was a kid, try to catch the big ugly, but they really are efficient predators. They're ambush predators. They like to hide where they can look out and dart out to catch something to eat, and uh, they prefer to eat stuff that's alive when they get very big. Young fish will scavenge more than adults fish up to about 10 pounds, but once they get over 10 pounds, the biggest part of their diet is live fish. So they like to eat sunfish, shad, all kinds of bait fish that you might imagine they'll prefer to eat. So they're they're pretty efficient predators. You know, you dispelled another misnomer of mine in this article, because when I think of catching catfish... I always think of using cut bait or night crawlers or some sort of stink bait or chicken livers. But, I mean, for smaller flatheads, that works. But in the article you point out, for bigger flatheads, like you just said, you want live bait, don't you? Yeah, you know, if you really want your best chance of catching a big flathead, you need to use live bait. Now, I I will tell you, I've been in the boat when uh, big flatheads were caught on cut bait, uh, but it doesn't happen regularly, and it does happen regularly with live fish. And again, we're looking at fish like shad or skipjacks, carp even. Carp are real popular bait, suckers. Even small catfish like bullheads make good flathead bait. So they like to eat live fish. Now, having said that, folks, and and Keith points this out in the article as well, check your state regulations. You can't use live bait in certain states, so make sure you... Yeah, for sure. You know, you should always, regardless of what we're talking about, check your local regulations because they differ considerably from one state to another. All right. Now that we've got that out there, let's talk about where to find flatheads in rivers. And you talk about the Mississippi River, but there's lots of other rivers that have flatheads. What are certain areas in rivers where you should look for these fish? Well, keep in mind what I said earlier, that flatheads are ambush predators. They like to hide where they can dart out to find something to eat. So a lot of times they're going to be in spots where there's a hole or where there's an eddy in the current. Anytime there's an eddy around a rock jetty or a wing dike out in the river, those are good places. Bottom troughs along the edge of tall bluff banks that have woody cover are good. I look first for woody cover, like a fallen tree. I like to fish outside bends in the river where the river has washed away some of the dirt and a tree has toppled into the water. Those are prime hot spots for good flatheads. 
Hmm. You know, as a bass angler, I'm thinking to myself, those are prime hot spots for smallmouth and largemouth bass, too. Yeah, you know, you, you are kind of looking in similar areas. In fact, guys who are throwing crankbaits, we don't think of flatheads being able to see real well because they have small eyes, but they really do. And they'll hit crankbaits and spoons and other baits thrown by bass anglers, too, on occasion. But they like to be up in really thick cover most of the time. And so that kind of limits you from using lures as much as you might use live bait. I like to use a live bait under a big bobber that'll float that bait where I can control where my bait's going so I can get close to that woody cover, maybe tempt that fish out of there. Let's talk about catching catfish, not just flatheads, but catfish in general, whether they're blues or or channel cats at this time of year. It's November. The water is cold. Do these fish kind of go dormant like other species do, or are they still active right now? Well, they're extremely active down here in my neck of the woods in Arkansas and the Mid-South. This is a time of year when flatheads are kind of putting on the feed bag so they can fatten up for the winter because flatheads, once the water gets extremely cold, below 45 degrees, let's say, they feed much less than they do when the water temperature is higher. In fact, I have some diver friends who say when they dive in the wintertime, flatheads will be laying on the bottom kind of covered up with silt, just dormant just laying there not moving around now that's not the case with blue cats and channel cats so they're very active throughout the winter months even and ice fishermen catch them we catch them here in the south and we've learned that the biggest catfish those big 100 pound blue cats and 30 40 pound channel cats they really bite well in the winter time if you can find deep wintering holes where they're stacked up So don't quit fishing because it's cold out. (laughs) These fish will still bite. And flatheads, they're dormant, but they'll come back again in the spring with a vengeance. All right. Well, now is prime time in the south to fish for flatheads, and any time is a good time to fish for blues or channel cats. So get your catfish on and subscribe as well to Catfish Now. Just go to catfishnow.com, sign up. It doesn't cost a thing to do so, and become a better catfish angler. Keith, always a pleasure, sir, to have you on America Outdoors Radio. Same here, John. Thanks for having me on. And now it's time for one of my favorite show segments. It's record fish time. From the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, we learned that there is a new Georgia state record for an Almaco Jack. What's an Almaco Jack, you ask? The Almaco Jack is actually related to the Amberjack. As for this fish, it weighed 7 pounds and 0.7 ounces. It was caught by Sean Tarpley, who is actually an employee of the Georgia DNR's Coastal Resources Division. He was fishing offshore in a private boat, and Georgia DNR made it clear he was off-duty with some co-workers and friends when he caught the fish. The fish was caught October 18th off the coast of Georgia in an area known as the 40-mile bottom. Way to go, Sean. That's a jack you'll always remember. Congratulations on your new record. Last but not least, I'd like to share a story 
that was actually penned by Keith Sutton for Ducks Unlimited back in 2008. It's about the Great Armistice Day storm back in November 11, 1940. Thousands of hunters were gathered in the Midwest along the upper Mississippi River to hunt ducks. And the fall of 1940 had been unseasonably warm. Many areas started off with blue skies and a balmy 55 degree temperature that day. But the pleasant weather didn't last long. A storm was brewing that had hit the Pacific Northwest with near-hurricane-force gusts, and this storm did not weaken as it passed through the Rockies. Instead, it tapped moisture from the Gulf of Mexico and cold air lurking over Canada, and the two combined into an explosive pattern. The skies darkened, winds picked up, and sprinkles of rain began to fall, and by noon, a howling blizzard began making its way across the upper Mississippi. When the temperatures first began to plummet, most duck hunters were pleased. Shooting conditions were perfect. Thousands of ducks started funneling into the river valley, and the gunning got better and better. What the hunters did not realize was that the ducks were gathering in huge concentrations to seek shelter from the increasingly bad weather. Many hunters decided to stay until they could take a limit of birds, or until she Shooting hours were over at 4 p.m. Now, during the excitement of the hunt, the ferocity of the wind and cold air was ignored, and when 4 o'clock rolled around, the hunters discovered it was too rough to get back to the mainland. Some tried anyway and managed to make it ashore under their own steam, only to look back and see that the river was running five-foot waves, and that's why hunters did not make it back home that night. Freezing, they made their way to high ground when possible and tried to make the best of a terrible situation. Some huddled together for warmth under overturned boats. Others walked round and round to keep from freezing. Before the night was over, the wind chill temperatures dropped as low as minus 55 degrees. That's right, a 100-degree swing. The next day, more than 50 duck hunters were found dead by rescuers. Their frozen bodies recovered from marshes, lakes, potholes, ponds, and rivers, from Ontario to Illinois, and from Iowa to Michigan. And that's why the Great Armistice Day Storm found a piece of infamy as one of the deadliest winter storms to ever hit this country. My thanks to Keith Sutton, not only for this article, but for the great conversation we just had about catfish. On that note, we have got to go, but here's wishing all of you a happy Veterans Day and thanking all of you who served for your service. If you're heading out to the marsh, do be prepared and do remember this. It is your country and your outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. (laughs) 